how important is financial stewardship? Welcome to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr., author, pastor, teacher at Shiloh Church in Jacksonville and Orange Park, Florida. In today's text out of Luke 16, Pastor Charles will discuss the importance of financial stewardship. Today's message, financial advice from a crooked manager. And now, here's Pastor H.B. Charles Jr., Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the atoning blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has opened for us a new and living way to you. We love because you first loved us when we were strangers and hurting and needy. You graced us. You poured out mercy toward us. You so loved us that you gave your only son that whoever lives, believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you for the celebration of the finished work of Christ in our time of communion. We thank you for the new members you have added to this local body. We thank you for the privilege of singing praise to your high name. And we thank you for this time of worshiping your word. Be our teacher, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Give us understanding and we will obey your word and keep it with our whole heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 16 is our text for the morning. Luke 16, beginning at verse number one. Luke 16, beginning at verse number one. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. 
If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Permit me to label the message financial advice from a crooked manager. Financial advice from a crooked manager. There are many people who refuse to go to a church because they think or feel the preacher is just after their money. In response, there are many pastors and congregations who intentionally avoid the subject of money lest they give the wrong impression. Their motives are sincere, their concern is legitimate, but their strategy is illegitimate. It's misguided. You see, the fact is, brothers and sisters, you cannot be a faithful church or a faithful Christian if you ignore this fundamental subject of financial stewardship. There are more than 600 references to prayer in the Bible. There are almost 500 references to faith in the Bible. There are some 2,350 references to money in the Bible. One out of every 10 verses in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, addresses riches, wealth, or material possessions. Half of the 30-something recorded parables of Jesus in the New Testament address money management one way or another. In fact, Jesus said more about money than he said about heaven and hell combined. So it should be no surprise that Jesus follows the three parables he tells in chapter 15 of Luke about salvation with two parables in chapter 16 about stewardship. There's verses 1 through 13. Our text, the parable of the unjust steward. And verses 19 through 31 records what is called the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Parable of the unjust steward is arguably the hardest parable of Jesus and the most difficult passage in Luke's gospel. But this complex text makes a simple point. The point is this. There is no discipleship where there is no stewardship. Let me say that again. There is no 
discipleship where there is no stewardship. In fact, your money management is the most objective indicator of your true devotion to Christ that there is. It is the only aspect of the Christian life that you cannot fake. You can fake prayer, Bible knowledge, holiness, worship, or concern for the lost, but you cannot fake stewardship. Our bank records tell on us. For that matter, our life stories can be told by our bank statements. Reflect our time, our goals, our priorities, our convictions, and our relationships. When government, law enforcement, or business suspect fraud, they have a simple way of getting to the truth, right? They just follow the paper trail until they discover where the money went. And in court, good intentions, personal testimonies, and character witnesses don't mean a thing. What happened to the money is all that matters. This is what Jesus does in our text. In this story, he tells us about a crooked CEO who cooked the books to maintain his lavish lifestyle after he was fired for embezzling his master's money. Consider the parable with me. Verse 1. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. There's a rich man who had a steward, a manager, a servant that he entrusted to oversee his records and receipts and resources. This would have to be a man of impeccable character. This quote-unquote manager had power of attorney over the master's estate. So verse 1 really shows us a steward's worst nightmare. He is charged with wasting his master's money. The term charge there denotes the malicious nature of the accusations. And the term wasting is the same word used in Luke chapter 15 verse 13 to describe how the prodigal son wasted his inheritance with prostitutes in the far country. This manager was charged with wasting his master's money. Verse 2 says, he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. After this meeting with his master in verse 2, verses 3 and 4 records the next meeting this manager had, wait for it, with himself. Verses 3 and 4, he says to himself, now what? What am I going to do? I got this bad back. I can't do manual labor. And I got my pride. 
I'm not begging anybody for help. What am I going to do? Oh, yeah. I got it. I know exactly what to do so that somebody will welcome me in when my boss kicks me out. He starts having other meetings. Look at the text. Verse 5, he calls in one of the debtors and says, how much do you owe my master? As the manager, he already knew the answer to that. How much do you owe my master? And he says, 100 measures of oil. That's about 850 gallons of oil. The yield of about 150 olive trees, and it was worth about 1,000 denarii. The manager said, quick, take your bill and cut it in half. We'll just call it 50. Then he called in another one and said, how much do you owe? Verse 7, 100 measures of wheat. This is about a thousand bushels, the yield of about 1,000 acres of land, and it was worth about 250, 2,500 denarii. For the record, one denarius is what a common laborer would make for a day's work. He says to that debtor, take your bill, erase 100, and let's just make it 80. The sense of the text is that the manager had a series of these conversations and the point you're supposed to get is that a whole lot of people got hooked up that day. <laughs> so that when later this manager needed a favor, they would think kindly on him. The news got back to the master about what this manager had done and the manager simply calls him shrewd. That's it. That's the story. That's how the parable ends. Verses 8 through 13 is what I want us to focus on. Verses 8 through 13 records Jesus' commentary on this strange little story. And there are three big lessons about financial stewardship. Three lessons Jesus teaches us about how to use the money that God gives us in this text. Lesson number one, use your money with strategic generosity. Use your money with strategic generosity. Verse eight says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. This is one of the reasons why this is such a difficult parable to understand. The master commends the dishonest manager. The manager misappropriated the master's money and falsified official documents to provide himself a golden parachute. Look at verse 8. He's even called a dishonest manager. Yet the master commends his shrewdness. He is not commending his underhanded tactics, but he is commending his strategic wisdom in devising and executing this plan to make sure that he doesn't go from being a CEO to a beggar in the streets. 
Even though the master was cheated, he says, I got to give this crook his props. That's a pretty shrewd thing that he did. If that's not weird, look at the rest of verse 8. Jesus co-signs this commendation. It says, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Jesus is saying, no, Jesus is lamenting the fact that unbelievers in the world often work diligently, plan well, save aggressively, spend carefully, and invest wisely when believers do not. Jesus doesn't give this criticism in order to challenge us to try to keep up with the world's standard of financial success. We know this because in verse 9, he, verse 8, he qualifies this with the phrase, their own generation. You ought to underline that. The rich people of the world have it going on, but it's just in their own generation. People spend their lives trying to build financial empires. The rules of the game are very simple. The one who has the most toys at the end wins. The problem is the one who has the most toys at the end still dies. And you cannot take any of those toys with you. So Jesus is not trying to teach us how to beat the world at its own game. He is bidding us to use money with godly wisdom. How do you do that? Verse 9, Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The instruction of verse 9 is as controversial as the commendation in verse 8. Jesus calls money here unrighteous wealth. Yet he commands make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. And then he gives the reason. So that when it, the unrighteous wealth, when money fails, you should note that word when, not if, when money fails you, they will welcome you into the eternal dwellings. This is a perplexing statement, perplexing statement, but I think the context helps. Lay your eyes on, on your Bible for just a moment with me. Look at verse 1 again. The first clause of verse 1 says, he also said to his disciples. The key word there is also. Also connects chapter 16 to chapter 15. Go back to the first two verses of chapter 15. Verse 1 of chapter 15 says, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. And the Bible says in that second verse, that the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That word receives means to welcome, to embrace, 
to affirm. He has accepted them. He receives them. And the proof that he receives them, verse 2, Luke 15, is that he eats with them. In the cultural world of the day, sharing a meal was more about friendship than it was about food. Jesus befriends these sinful people. He receives them. In response to this criticism, Jesus tells three parables that reveal God's heart for lost people. And then out of chapter 15 into chapter 16, he then tells this parable about this unjust steward who pulled a fast one so that his, his master's debtors would receive him, same word, into their houses after he is fired. And from there, Jesus says, verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by the means of unrighteous wealth so that when money fails you, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Notice verse 14. In the very next text, Jesus condemns the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, for being lovers of money. And then in verses, as I mentioned, verses 19 through 31, Jesus tells the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus and the rich man. There was a rich man who fared sumptuously every day, Jesus says. He had a banquet every day. And there was a poor man named Lazarus at his gate who every day would just beg for the crumbs that fell from the banquet table, but the rich man wouldn't receive the poor man just to give him crumbs. They both died. Lazarus went to heaven. The rich man went to hell. And in the torment of hell, watch me, the rich man who would not receive Lazarus on earth to give him crumbs from his banquet table, now wants to receive Lazarus in hell so that Lazarus can bring him from heaven a drop of water to ease his torment. Bottom line, I think of these two chapters Jesus is trying to get across to us, church, is this. The burden of the text is this. Every person will spend eternity somewhere. Jesus condemns us who call ourselves Christians for spending our money, for treating money, for living for money as if Jesus didn't die, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and as if Jesus is not coming again. He says, you ought to use your money with strategic wisdom so that when it fails, they'll receive you into the eternal dwellings. Can I just tell you bluntly what I think Jesus is saying? I think Jesus is saying, week in and week out, a faithful pastor stands in the pulpit and preaches the gospel, and over those weeks and months and years, souls are saved. And when he gets to heaven, he's going to get a great reward and be greeted 
by those who heard from him the preaching of the gospel and turned from sin to salvation. What I think Jesus is saying here is that there are a lot of other believers who will get nowhere near a microphone but use their resources strategically so that the gospel could be preached. And when you get to heaven, there are going to be people waiting on you as well, celebrating the fact that they would not know God if you didn't use your resources to get the gospel out. I thought you'd be more excited about that. That won't mean nothing to you if you just live for now. This is what Jesus is saying. You, you ought to make friends for yourself for the sake of eternity. Think of it this way. Say you live during the Civil War. You are a part of the Confederacy. And you are rich. No, you're the richest person in the Confederate States. But you get a hint that the Confederates are going to lose. The South will fall in the war. What, what would you do? If you're foolish, you just keep on living it up. Being a big shot with your Confederate money, that's not going to last long. But if you are wise... You'll only hold on to enough Confederate money to meet your family's needs. And then you take the rest to the bank and you trade it in for union money so that when the Confederacy falls and the union wins, you'll still be rich. Right? What Jesus is saying is if you are a Christian, you have received an insider's tip that this present world order is not going to last. So Jesus is saying, don't be foolish investing everything you get on the things of this world that will not last. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your what? Heart will be also. Literally what Jesus is saying here, church, three words, invest in eternity. How do you do that? Several ways. Invest in the poor. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17 says... Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay for his deed. Let me try it again. 
when you give money to the poor, you are not giving money to the poor. Whenever you give money to the Lord, you are lending money to the Lord. And the Lord is no one's debtor. If you lend it to the Lord, the Lord knows how to pay you back. Am I making sense, church? Invest in the poor, invest in children. Proverbs 13, verse 20 says, a good man, and it applies to a good woman, a good man, a good woman, a good person doesn't spend it on themselves. But a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, while the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Invest in children, invest in the poor, but I want to commend to you the best way to invest in eternity, and that is to invest in the church. The church is the hope of the world. When you invest in the mission and ministry of the church, you are investing in eternity. The church is the hope of the world because the church is the steward of the only message that will matter for eternity. We are sinners on a collision course with the wrath of the holy God. But God in Christ has reconciled us to himself by the blood of his cross. And whoever confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God has raised him from the dead shall be saved. Only the gospel can change the world. And Jesus here bids us to use our money with strategic generosity. Secondly, use your money with unconditional integrity. I don't know if there's a more important statement Jesus makes about practical financial management from God's perspective than verse number 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Oh, Lord. Lord. If you just bless me, I'll bless you and I'll bless everybody I can. <laughs> Listen to what Jesus says. If you faithful with the little bit you got, I can trust you to be faithful with more. If, if you broke and I can barely trust you to come to church with you being broke, what you going to do when I give you resources to travel wherever you want to go? Do you get what he's saying here? 
The world judges success by what a person has. Consequently, we live in a world with people always trying to get more. People living, working desperately to get a six-figure salary. I hope that ain't who I think it is. I'ma just say that. I'ma just, Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. <laughs> oh God. All right. All right. I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> People are always trying to get more. That's what I was saying. So you have, you have people who are doing whatever it takes to get a six-figure salary. But little do they know that the people with a six-figure salary are not satisfied. The people with a six-figure salary are, are not satisfied because they buy the lie that a six-figure salary requires a six-figure lifestyle. And so it's a vicious cycle, and you're never satisfied. You never have enough because the more you have, the more you want. And we judge people then by what they have. But aren't you glad God doesn't judge you by what you have? It can be a little or it can be a lot. God only has one question. Are you faithful with what you have? Do you know that one of the greatest compliments Jesus ever gave anyone? He gave it to a widow who just had two mites that were worth less than a penny. Are you faithful with what you have? 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 2 says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. That's the only job of a steward. That you be faithful to the one that gave you what you have. And I'm trying to tell you, money, more money is not the big solution for your problems. God wants you to be faithful with whatever you have. And is there a witness that if you are faithful where you are with what you have, as long as providence requires, God knows how to take care of you. I mean, is there a witness to that? Remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30? Two of the men labored with what they had and doubled it and received the same reward. Well done good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over much. 
The one talent guy who just hid his in the dirt is called wicked and lazy. And there are many of us like him whom God views to be wicked and lazy because we want to be rulers before we've been faithful. If God can't trust you with a little, he can't trust you with a lot. If God can't trust you as a follower, he can't trust you as a leader. If God can't trust you on a staff, he can't trust you with a staff. Are y'all in here with me? You got to be faithful with what God gives you. I don't know what y'all think, but I feel like I'm preaching my heart out here to you. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Jesus fleshes this principle out with a question of stewardship. If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Now look at the text again, verse 10. If you haven't been faithful with a very little, you won't be faithful with much. Now using the whole same parallel, lesser to greater, listen. He says in verse 11, If you haven't been faithful with unrighteous wealth, that's the little. Who can trust you with true riches? That's the much. Jesus says here, unrighteous wealth, watch me, money is a little thing. We treat money like a big thing. Jesus says it's just a little thing. And if if I can't trust you, Jesus says, with something little like money, How can I trust you with true riches? If you can't be trusted with something little like money, how can you be trusted with true riches? I think you've missed the point Jesus is making here. Money is not true riches. Just because you got money doesn't make you rich. Some of the poorest people in the world are people that got a whole lot of money. TV, movies, magazines, billboards. Put put before us these celebrities and actors and singers and CEOs and and entrepreneurs and self-made millionaires. And then you start watching the behind the scenes documentaries and the real life stories of, and some of these people that's supposed to got it going on got some of the messed up lives you've ever seen. Am I right? People that's supposed to have the world at their feet, got money to go and do and have whatever they want, and are miserable. Got to have drugs or drink to wake up in the morning. Got to have drugs or drink or help to go to bed at night. 
Because money, money is not true riches. Money buy a house, can't buy a home. Money can buy company, it can't buy friends. Money can buy medicine, it can't buy health. Money can buy sex, it can't buy intimacy. Money, the most important, money can buy a bed, but it can't buy sleep. Are y'all in here with me? Money is not real wealth. And if you can't be trusted with something little like money, who can trust you with true riches? Jesus says it this way in Matthew 16, verse 26, for what does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. Huh? What does it profit a man? To live in a big old house. In a gated community. But your soul is homeless. What does it profit a man? To wear designer clothes with a European label on the inside but your soul is naked. What does it profit a man to drive a fancy car with two names on the hood but your soul is thumbing a ride? Nothing in this world is worth the price of your soul. Life is more. I'm trying to move on. But in Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus says, Be on guard against covetousness. Be content with what you have. Because a man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. That's all I'm trying to tell you. You are more than what you have. You are more than the neighborhood you live in. You are more than the kind of car you drive. You are more than the clothes you wear. Life is more than money. Verse 11. If you can't be trusted with something little like money, who can trust you with true riches? Here's another question, verse 12. <laughs> Look at verse 12. And, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Verse 12 is worse than verse 11. Verse, verse 11 is saying you shouldn't live for money because money is not real wealth. Verse 12 says you shouldn't live for money because your money is not really your money. When I talk about financial stewardship, nothing I say about financial stewardship will make sense to you. Nothing scripture says, nothing Jesus says about financial stewardship 
will mean anything to you until you first come to grips with the first primary and definitive principle of Christian stewardship. Let me give it to you in four words. God owns it all. That's why all this matters. That's why this discussing about money, because God owns it all. The Vedicus chapter 27, verse 30. Says the tithe of all you possess belongs to the Lord. The tenth portion, the first tenth of everything you get should be consecrated back to the Lord. But what I'm trying to tell you is not only is that first 10% God's, the other 90% is his too. It all belongs to God. I knew you wouldn't believe me. So I pulled up God's bank records. And let me declare to you God's financial holdings. The psalmist did an audit of God's account and left on record his net and gross worth. It's called Psalm 24. It says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein belong to God. God, God owns everything. You own nothing. Not a house, not a car, not a condo, not a suit, not a dress, not shoes, not a TV, not a couch, not a toothbrush. You don't own anything. You, you don't even own you. First Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I got one more verse, but let me just bottom line what I'm trying to say here. Four words. Money is a test. It's a gift. It's a reward. It's a blessing. It's favor. Uh-uh. No. None of that. It's a test. Every dollar is a test. You're looking confused. Let me tell you how the test works. We get in church and we sing the songs of Lord, I praise you no matter what. I'll give you glory no matter what. I trust you no matter what. And then you get laid off on Monday. And God says, can you still sing? Then I'm going to praise you no matter what when you don't know where your next paycheck is coming from. Y'all not listening to me here. Or we say, Lord, I, I put nothing ahead of you. I praise you over everything. And the Lord says, let me give you a promotion. And see if you start putting things, start putting gifts ahead of the giver. Money is a what? Yeah. 
test. Jesus says, whatever you do, be faithful to God. One more verse where Jesus teaches the third lesson, and I'll give this to you quickly. Use your money with single-minded devotion. Use your money with single-minded devotion. Verse 13 says, no servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. This, this is not a person with multiple jobs. This is not, this is not a, a person with different employers. This is a slave who is under the sovereign authority of his master. He is not on his boss's staff. He is his master's property. A slave can no more serve two masters than he can walk in two different directions at the same time. He's got to choose. He got two masters telling him two different things. He can't serve them both. He's got to choose. Jesus makes this point to say this, last part of verse 13. You cannot serve God and money. Um, if you got an older translation in your lap, it says you cannot serve God and what? Mammon. mammon. That's the old word used, mammon. What is mammon? M- m- mammon is from a Hebrew word that means that which is entrusted. It is that which is placed in the hands of another as a trust. But by the time of the days of Jesus, mammon had gone from passive to active in its emphasis. That is, it meant from meaning that which is entrusted to meaning that in which you trust. And Jesus uses the word to show us the danger of materialism. The danger of materialism is if you are not careful, money can go from being a sacred trust you humbly receive from a gracious God to becoming a false God in which you place your trust, your joy, and your security. So Jesus says you can't serve God and money. They are diametrically opposed, mutually exclusive, and self-contradictory. How are you going to serve God and money? God says walk by faith. Money says walk by sight. God says be humble. Money says show them you got it going on. God says, set your mind on things above. Money says, set your mind on things below. God says, focus on the things you can't see. Money says, focus on the things that can be seen. God says, live for eternity. Money says, live for now. You can't serve God and money at the same time. Now, I'm wrapping up. Jesus says you can't serve God and money. He doesn't say you can't have God and money. He just says you can't serve them both. So how do you work this thing out? Here's the solution. Serve God 
with your money. Money is a wonderful servant, but a horrible master. First Timothy chapter six, verse 10 says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And false and, and the false teachers, the prosperity preachers say, see that they, they misread the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that money is evil. It said the love of money is evil. <laughs> But listen to what Paul says. Paul does not say money is evil, and he doesn't say merely the love of money is evil. He says the love of money, 1 Timothy 6 and 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When you plant a seed and it takes root, stuff starts growing. The word you need to be careful of is root. You can't let a love of money get anywhere in your heart. Because when you start loving money, ain't no telling what you'll do. Come on, talk to me here. You'll start all kind of other evil stuff will grow because you got to have money. So you need to be like Joshua. Yeah. You need to be like Joshua. The end of Joshua's ministry is they come into the promised land of Canaan. He's bracing them to go into the promised land. And he tells them, Joshua chapter 24, that you need to choose who you're going to serve. You're going to go with the God that brought you over? Are you going to keep serving them false gods that your fathers served on the other side of the Jordan? Choose! It's voting time. It's election time. Forget Supreme Court. Forget President. Forget Governor, Senator. It's, he says it's time to vote on who your God going to be. Who you going to serve? He says, but while you cast in your ballot, let me vote first. As for me and my house, somebody ought to hear me here. We will serve the Lord. That ought to be your testimony. You know it was nobody but God that brought you over. Nobody but God that brought you out. Nobody but God that brought you through. As for me and everything I got, we will serve the Lord. And if you serve him, won't it pay off? I said, won't it pay off? Won't he take care of you? Won't he fight your battles? Won't he open doors? My, my daddy was a storytelling preacher. And uh, he didn't use no illustrations in his sermons till he got to the end. 
He'd close with an illustration every week and say, if you miss my message, keep my story. And I'd love to hear him tell those stories. Told a story about a fellow that got saved and the Lord changed his life. And he woke up one holiday and his wife is busy. And he says, uh, what you up to? She says, I'm cooking you a little something before I leave to go over to spend the holiday with my family. I would invite you, but since you done got all saved, you done started acting different. And my family don't want you raining on their good time. So I, I, don't, I don't even want that tension so I didn't even bother to invite you. But I don't want you going around telling nobody I didn't cook for you. Because uh, all, all, all there is, this is my daddy, he was from Lake Charles, Louisiana. He says all there is in the refrigerator is a piece of fat back, piece of salt pork. And he said, put it on the boil. He said, what you going to eat with it? He said, I don't know, just put it on the boil. She did it, wondering what's wrong with him. My daddy said, I'm almost done. He went out on the porch and sat there and enjoyed the morning reading his newspaper. And as he was sitting there enjoying the newspaper, the vegetable wagon came down the road. <laughs> And my daddy said, right when it got in front of old boy's house, it hit a rock or something in the road and tilted and three bunches of greens fell off. <laughs> Y'all ain't in here with me. And he yelled out to the man, hey man, you dropped your greens. And the vegetable man looked back and said, I don't want them. You can have them. That's it. I'm going on to Orange Park. That's the story. My, my daddy would just say, if you trust in God, he knows how to drop greens off at your house. If you put God first, have I got a witness? God will. I can't go no further. But if you need something else to shout, that's your problem. But if you know he will provide, you ought to give him a praise for what he's dropped off at your house to take care of you. Thanks for listening to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.P. Charles Jr. If you would like more resources from Pastor Charles or to support this ministry, he can be reached online at www.hbcharlesjr.com. That's hbcharlesjr.com. Join us again for Cutting It Straight, and God bless.